A week before the Battle of Bull Run, Sullivan Ballou, a major in the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers, wrote home to his wife in Smithfield. July the 14th, 1861, Washington, D.C. Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. And lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I have enjoyed with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I've enjoyed them for so long and how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years. When God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and see our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been. But oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always. When the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath, or the cool air, your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone, and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the First Battle of Bull Run. I'm going to give you a minute to find the nearest Kleenex in response to what you just heard. Because in an era in which the written word was the only communication that you had, and in a season like the Civil War was in which every single letter you got was full of hope because at least you knew that that person was still alive. And in a day in which if you were writing it, you were having to reckon with the fact that these words might be your last, then every word mattered. And surely that day 
was Sullivan Ballou's parting words to his wife. Parting words that were full of love, words that were full of hope, words that were meant to reassure her that his love for her was deathless. And words like that were his parting words and they were gifts. And she would treasure them. And now we have the privilege of treasuring them also. As we said at the beginning of our worship, today is the day in which Jesus ascends to heaven, not to die, he's already been a conqueror over death, but to return to his Father, whatever that could mean, whatever that would look like, but in order to reign and serve and to pray and to be present. And so he did. But before he leaves, he gives his disciples some parting words that really are parting gifts. See, they had been in his presence and now they would not be in his presence like they had been before or he in theirs and for us who've never been in his presence as they had the gifts and the words that he imparts to them are the same that he imparts to us words and gifts that we must receive and words and gifts that we need what are those gifts that we need right before he leaves right before he ascends there are three. He gives us a privilege. He gives us a power. And He gives us a promise. And we need to take in all three for our day. So I wonder if you might lean in and listen again to the very first chapter of the book of Acts. Our central text for today can be found in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This, this is the word, word of the Lord. Lord. These parting words of Jesus, they're few, they're thick, but they all come in response to a question that his disciples put to him, a question that is a totally reasonable deduction on their part. If they now have a Lord who was dead and who was risen, and that he has made multiple appearances to disciples, and if as Paul puts it, to 500 before all said and done. 
And if Jesus himself has spoken openly and often about a kingdom that comes with him, then you can understand why they would ask him the question, Lord, is now the time in which you will restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they, they put on their, their mega hats, their, their make Israel great again hats, their, their, their mega yarmulkes. And I know I miss you and, and the way you pity me for my humor. But they put on their mega yarmulkes because they think that maybe, given what they've seen in him and heard from him, that now is the time when he's going to kick Rome out and restore Israel to its golden age in which they are free of oppression, free of constraint, able to live in flourishing as a people, as the people of God to bless all nations. You can understand why they would ask that question. And Jesus doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't think it's off base. He just defers. He says, boys, that information is on a need-to-know basis, and at this moment, you do not need to know. God knows, he's told, or he hadn't said, and therefore, it's going to be okay if you don't know. Instead, he says, I have something else to tell you. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. That is essentially everything that Jesus has for us in this one message. And yet, that's a thick verse. It's two parts to it. And we're going to break that message down into to two parts. And we're going to take the second part first. Because the second part is Jesus' first parting gift to us. And that parting gift to us is a privilege. It's not a program. It's not a proving ground. It's not a little box that you tick. It's a privilege. And that privilege is to bear witness to him to attest to him, to speak for him, to bring attention to him in a way that's persuasive. Jesus does that himself. We heard a few verses earlier. Luke says, Jesus went about and presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. It's what he did to demonstrate the truth of his resurrection. Why? So that they might believe. That's bearing witness. Bearing witness is, is not simply speaking about him, speaking about his existence. It's about speaking of his worth and of his worth to you. That's bearing witness, and that's our privilege. And it doesn't just happen in words. It's not less than words, but it's not only words. It happens through the choices that we make. It happens through the priorities we set. It happens through the commitments that we make. It happens... In the way we devote ourselves to our vocation, it happens the way we commit ourselves to our education. Bearing witness occurs not only in the way we attend to people who are suffering, but how we suffer. Bearing witness can even occur in the way that you die. And even bearing witness can even be involved in how you speak and act and deal with your regrets and your fears and your failures. All of those are an opportunity to bear witness of your sense of His worth to you. That's the privilege. That's His parting gift to us, is the privilege of attesting to Him. Now, as soon as I say that, we pan out and we take stock of the fact that for every one person that might have a faith in Him or might even be inclined to indulge that privilege that there are, depending on where you are, three, five, eight, ten, a thousand, a million others who do not share that same belief or share no faith in any transcendent being alone. And in a culture like that, wherever you find yourself, there's at least two messages 
that you get if you were ever to entertain the possibility of walking in that privilege. And the first message from a culture that looks on to you is to say, don't be odd, man. This bearing witness, this thing you call evangelism, that's odd. That's nuts. That's weird. Don't do that. Nobody does that. It's just odd. Cut it out. To which, if you just think about it for a minute, no, that's not the case at all. Bearing witness, evangelism of every kind is everywhere. Everybody's doing it. Um, goodness gracious, go onto your feed this afternoon and look at all the people advocating for particular ideas that they might sound persuasive so that you might buy into it, that you might join in on the same idea. Evangelism, bearing witness is everywhere. In advertising, in politics, in educational policy, those are just the most obvious expressions of it, where certain ideas are championed that others might buy into them, to be persuaded by them, and to walk in their way. That's, that's bearing witness, and it's everywhere. And who, who among us is still under the illusion that the arts and literature and entertainment are themselves not rather blatant forms of evangelism and bearing witness? What are the most potent ways to communicate a narrative that a, that a, that a whole society might begin to embrace? Isn't it not through stories? Through telling stories. Friends, evangelism is everywhere. It is not odd. Okay, fine. Perhaps somebody hears that and, and grants the fact. Okay, so it's not odd. Well, fine. Well, then at least don't be rude. It's rude to uh, proclaim that one person and one faith might be worth the whole world's whole attention. That's arrogant. Don't be rude. Why would you go there? And you hear that, and maybe you've heard that before, and maybe you've said that yourself. Maybe you still think that. But step back a minute and, and consider that that claim, that accusation of being rude, has a certain, a certain belief that's beneath it that may be unacknowledged or uncritically held. If you say that it is rude, that it is off-putting, that it is impossible to be able to speak of a belief that might hold truth and relevance for everyone. To, to say that is impossible, you're, you're guilty of the very claim that you're indicting. It is the perfect example of the pot calling the kettle black. To say that there is no belief that holds sway is itself a belief that you can't prove. To say that there is no universal truth claim that anyone should ever embrace or espouse, guess what? That's a universal truth claim. Your slip is showing, man. It's not rude. And for you to accuse another of thinking so or doing so is in fact, by your own standard, to be engaged in the same issue. You're being rude for calling out another one rude. All right, look. Even if bearing witness is not odd, even if it's not rude on those terms, it doesn't prove anything except the fact that bearing witness is a legitimate endeavor. And once you get past all of the objections to being it being a legitimate thing, then you begin to discover why it is in fact a privilege. Why it is in fact something that one might be thrilled to do when given the chance. And it's not because what bearing witness is, is all about trying to get somebody else to switch teams. It's not about trying to win an argument. 
It's about trying to unfold a set of ideas that speak to the deepest concerns of every single soul on the planet. It has relevance to every single person, whether they hold to any belief or not. Do you believe that dignity is something to be upheld? Fantastic. Let me tell you about someone who never let any social, ethnic, or moral distinctions be ever an excuse for crossing those lines and giving them his full attention, his concern, and even his love. Maybe you are incensed about corruption or greed. Wonderful. Let me tell you about someone who confronted both in love, both either exposing how one can be enslaved to that kind of thing, or transforming someone in real time from greed to generosity. Maybe you are animated by just or merciful causes. Fantastic. Let me tell you about somebody who reached out to the marginalized, who defended the weak, who befriended the outcast, who advocated for the poor, who healed the sick. I know someone who is like that. Maybe you are animated by the environment. Wonderful. Let me tell you about somebody who spoke highly of birds and trees and water and bread and whose very existence, whose very being originates in a storyline in which the very first humans are entrusted with cultivating and stewarding everything that they've been given, not simply exploiting it and using it to their own ends. And on top of all of that, that same person who I might tell you about, who might have resonance with all of those issues, let me tell you about somebody who gives you an identity that you don't have to merit or forge yourself or work for and then fail and fail to live up to, but instead gives you an identity that you cannot lose and who at the same time will take everything that is weak in you and frail in you and regrettable in you and corrupt in you, what we call sinfulness, and he will take that upon himself and it cost to himself. He will cover it and build into you a life that is marked by both humility and courage. That's someone I know that I would want to tell you about and who at the same time, as a consequence of all of that, overcame death which means that you can have every single other thought about your death in a different way now. To bear witness to Him is not simply out to recruit, it's out to unfold a set of ideas that, my gosh, if they're true, who wouldn't want them? And once you establish that, then you, then you provide several good reasons why, why a basis for belief in Him is credible. That's bearing witness, and that's the privilege of it. Look, um, there are a lot of people these days who get juiced, who are thrilled about spreading bad news. They love it. And then fortunately, along comes John Krasinski, and for the last six weeks, he's got some good news. And what does that confirm for us all? That there is joy. There is thrill in being the bearer of good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Isaiah says. That's the privilege of bearing witness to one who speaks to our deepest conditions and offers us a completion to our stories that nothing else can. Now, even so, even if it was being at privilege of bearing witness, I know and you know that that whole enterprise is full of apprehensions from within and forces from without. I know that, and you know who else knew that? Jesus knew that. And that's why 
the only parting gift he gives us, the not, not the only parting gift he gives us is the privilege. He's also got something else for us. Something else that we need. Back in verse 4, you hear Luke quote Jesus to speak of two kinds of baptisms. John's baptism with water, and then you being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And those two baptisms go together, and they're interdependent, and they're absolutely necessary. Baptism in and of itself means washing, it means cleansing, but if you think of it in other ways, it also means an identification with something and a reception of something. And that is what we hear Jesus speak of. John's baptism was a baptism of water, it was a baptism of repentance, it was a baptism of cleansing. The need of cleansing in order to be present and in relationship with the God who is holy. That was necessary. But Jesus speaks of another baptism, a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's the second parting gift he gives us. It's power. There is a power that comes to us as a parting gift, as a consequence of his departing from us in the way that he did. These two baptisms were were uh, inextricably bound. The, the purpose of the washing is to have the power. What, what's the point of being cleansed if there isn't a purpose about being fit for a purpose? And the, the, the empowerment, there was a prerequisite for it, and that was the washing. And so these two baptisms go together, and apparently Jesus is out to tell us that this second parting gift, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this power was necessary for the fulfillment of our privilege. Why? Why do we need it? Why can't we just say what we just said? For the reasons I just enumerated. If in the enterprise of fulfilling this privilege there are apprehensions apprehensions within our heart, then we need something to attend to those apprehensions. And if the point of bearing witness is for others to believe, and in them there is an inerrant resistance to it, then there has to be something that breaks down those resistances to belief. There's a, a scene from a film I want to show you right now. It's from the film The Big Kahuna. It's about uh, three colleagues that are part of an industrial lubricant firm, and they are at one of those big conventions in which they might show off their industrial lubricant wares. Isn't that a storyline, right? And it just so happens that one of them strikes up a conversation with a potentially huge purchaser, and his two other colleagues say, do you know who you just met? And you struck up a friendship with him? We've got to send you back. You've got to try to make a big sale with him. And so he goes. And it just so happens that this third colleague, young guy, sweet guy, innocent guy, he's also a Christian. And in the midst of him talking to this guy that might represent for them the biggest sale they've ever made, he talks to him about Jesus, not about industrial lubricants. And in this scene, he has come back to his two colleagues to explain why he talked about Jesus rather than industrial lubricants. Now, Bob, I'd like to ask you a question, and I'd like a straight answer. <clears throat> Can you give that to me? Yes. Who raised the subject of Jesus honestly? I did. You? Yes. Mentioned Jesus first? Yes. 
Why? Because it's very important to me. The people hear about Jesus. You mean that that he died for their sins? Yes. Okay, Bob, let me restate the question. Understanding that it was very important to our being here that we meet with and speak to Mr. Fuller concerning the lubricant situation, why did you instead choose to talk to him about Jesus? Because I think it's more important. Even though we're at a convention where it's more customary to talk business. Yes, I understand, Larry. I, I just don't see the crime in speaking to a, a, another human being as another human being. I didn't mention work or lubricants or anything like that because I didn't want him to think I was using the subject of religion to cozy up to him, to get him to sign some contract. I didn't want him to think I was insincere. But you were insincere, Bob, in a much greater sense. Apostle Paul said... Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I'm trying to have a conversation with you here. Don't bring the Apostle Paul in. I'm trying to do something else. I don't see how we can have a conversation like this if I'm not allowed to bring up the subject of God. We're not talking about God. I'm talking about something bigger than God. Bigger than God? At issue, Bob, is not your belief in God or your desire to spread that belief. At issue is what we're here to do. Which is what, Larry? Which is what? We're here to sell lubricants, Bob. Industrial lubricants. We're not here to save souls. Seeing a scene like that, we're, we're talking about a, a debate over a scale of value. And, and one thing that the Holy Spirit is necessary for is to help us understand that scale of value. And in a moment like that, the, the, young, the young whippersnapper is right. If Jesus is risen from the dead, if your sins are forgiven, and you may think about your own death entirely differently on the basis of his resurrection, then you're right. He is of greater importance than talking about industrial lubricants. The scale of value makes perfect sense. And so when I struggle with my own apprehensions about talking to somebody, about bearing witness, in that moment, what's happening? I've come to value something greater than my sense of His worth to me and to the world. And it's the Holy Spirit who steps in to do what? To primarily impress upon us deeply His worth. Because there will always be risk in bearing witness. You will always risk ridicule. You will always risk eye-rolling. You will always risk rejection. And in some places, you risk much worse. But one reason we need the Holy Spirit, it's not magic. It's not being put into a trance. It's simply about coming to grips and reckoning with the fact that the risk to us is less than His worth to us. And the Holy Spirit does that. And that's one reason we need Him. But as you caught there at the tension at the end of the scene, there is a whole debate, not only about the scale of value, but maybe what is the overriding motivation in this young guy to speak about Jesus so highly? And in this next scene, which happens just a couple minutes later, the other silent partner there that was not vocal in the previous scene, he's played by Dana DeVito, he, he wants this young guy to really listen to what's 
beneath the surface of his desire to speak of Jesus in every setting. Because in this scene, we're going to discover that bearing witness and the Holy Spirit is more than just about having courage. That risking rejection is not a virtue in and of itself. And that that's why we need the Holy Spirit for one other way. You too are an honest man, Bob. I believe that. That somewhere down deep inside of you is something that strives to be honest. The question that you have to ask yourself is, has it touched the whole of my life? What does that mean? That means that you preaching Jesus is no different than Larry or anybody else preaching lubricants. It doesn't matter whether you're selling Jesus or Buddha or civil rights or how to make money in real estate with no money down. That doesn't make you a human being. It makes you a marketing rep. If you want to talk to somebody honestly as a human being, ask him about his kids. Find out what his dreams are. Just to find out. For no other reason. Because as soon as you lay your hands on a conversation, to steer it, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a pitch. And you're not a human being. You're a marketing rep. Oh, forgive me if I respectfully disagree. We were talking before about character you were asking me about character and we were speaking of faces but the question is much deeper than that the question is do you have any character at all and if you want my honest opinion Bob you do not for the simple reason that you don't regret anything yet you're saying I won't have any character Unless I do something I regret? No, Bob. I'm saying you've already done plenty of things to regret. You just don't know what they are. Sometimes prophetic words, stinging words of the Spirit come from the most unlikely places. And in that moment, what does this young guy learn? That the difference between a pitch and bearing witness, the difference between being a marketing rep and bearing witness is twofold. It is about having enough respect and dignity and love for the other person that you might be sharing it with and enough humility to reckon with your need for the very thing that you're sharing with another. If you don't love them and if you're not honest with your own frailty, then you're just a pitch man. This is just marketing. And that is why you and I need the Holy Spirit to commend unto us a love for another with whom we might bear witness. And we must come to terms with our own deep need for the very thing that the Holy Spirit is out to confirm in us. A love for and a gratitude for. That's what we need the Holy Spirit for. And not just for boldness, not just for love, not just for humility. If in fact, every human heart that might turn unto him has had a heart opened by the Holy Spirit, then we need the Holy Spirit to even be effective at this enterprise. And this we know, but this we forget, and we put it all upon ourselves, and we think it's all riding on us, and it never was, and it never will be. 
Bearing witness is a privilege, and that privilege becomes our priority. Bearing witness depends on a power, and that power becomes our necessity. And with that, Jesus departs. He ascends. Have no idea what it looked like. Go back to the Baroque painting if you must imagine what it was like. But in that moment, which we think to our minds must be weird, it's no weirder than what we've already seen Jesus do. It's no weirder than Jesus rising from the dead. It's no weirder than Jesus showing Thomas the scars in his side and in his hands. It's no weirder than Jesus, his identity, his, his identity being concealed from those two guys or that husband and wife on their way to Emmaus. It's no weirder than Jesus showing himself alive to 500 and it's the next logical step based upon what he's out to do. Because see, Jesus has come near in order that he might go wide. He is now with his ascension becoming invisible to some who knew him well, that he might become accessible to any who might call upon his name. And once he's gone, implicitly, he leaves us with one parting, last parting gift, a third parting gift that is implicit in him, but is explicit in these two guys that show up with the disciples looking up with their mouths wide open. And these two guys in white, they say, men of Galilee, why do you standing here looking up into heaven? For this Jesus whom you saw go up into heaven, he will return in the same way. This third parting gift that they commend unto him or to those disciples is a promise. We have a privilege. With that privilege comes a requisite power. And to fulfill that enterprise, we need a certain promise. And that promise is, he may be gone, but he's not gone, gone. He may be out of sight, but he's not out of reach. He may not be someone that we can see as others saw him, but it doesn't mean we can't love him and sense that he is good and want to do as he has done, not in fear, but in gratitude and in love. That's his promise. And they commend it to us. But at the same time, they're reminding us of a promise. They're also giving us a little bit of a prompt. When they ask, why are you looking up into heaven? In some ways, it's them saying unto us, why are you disturbed? Why are you unsettled? But another way they're saying, why are you standing here again? What are you waiting for? You know what's needed, right? You know what's next, right? To fulfill the privilege that's been entrusted to you with the help of the power given to you in a spirit. It's a nudge. They're talking to them like someone kind of gives you the blank stare going, what are you doing now? You know what's necessary. That's the fulfillment that he's calling them to. Look, in this whole series, we have cast Jesus as the great physician that he is. And he has come to heal us of our estrangement from God. He's come to heal us from our blindness to his beauty. He's come to heal us from our enslavement to sin. He's come to heal us from our addiction to self. He's come to heal us from our greed. But in this moment, I think Jesus in his parting gifts is out to heal us from the seduction of our own distraction. To heal us from the temptation to fear that manifests in silence and an unwillingness to risk. 
And I know that temptation, and I know that seduction, and I have succumbed to it on more times than I would ever care to count or admit. And that is why I am glad to those who flake out, flame out, forget or deny there's something that Jesus does for somebody who does that, who fails to reckon with the privilege and who denies the power. You know what he does for them? He makes them breakfast. Peter, his story is in every gospel, and in that moment, it was no privilege to bear witness. And in those moments, he saw no place for any power to overcome his apprehensions to it. And what does Jesus do? He makes him breakfast. And then just like Sullivan Ballou, he says to Peter, my love for you is deathless. Even when you're weak, even when you flame out, even when your mouth clamps shut with a vice. And in that love and in that forgiveness and in that desire to commend unto us His goodness, His forgiveness, His grace, and His steadfast love, that is the way out of a clamped shut mouth. Beloved and those who you look on, if this is true, there is no better news. And if there is no better news, then there is no greater privilege than to be a stammering, stuttering, frail, weak person to speak of Him in incomplete sentences with bad grammar. But that's His invitation to us. Those are His parting gifts to us. And those are what we need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.